Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Scott. Um, If you're just joining us for the first time or maybe you've just joined us over the last couple weeks, we are rejoining. Now, hold on. I know some of you just got excited with that word. I didn't say regathering. No, we're not starting live services yet. We're not there. But we are rejoining a series that we had hit pause on a few weeks ago. And we had started and it had been a few weeks into this series that we're calling The New You. And this idea of, of do we want to return to normal? Do we want to go back to what was or who we were when things begin to restart around us? And, and we began to talk about this opportunity we have, this opportunity to come back as a better version of ourselves than maybe where we were or who we were prior to the close down of of everything around us. And this opportunity we have where we could return with, with different or greater meaning and purpose, maybe greater in the realm of who God wants us to be or designed us to be series we're calling The New You. And so we're going to rejoin that here this week and to kind of catch you up or to refresh your your memory of it a little bit. In week one, what we talked about was was Jesus's power and his presence with us. And and Matt painted this beautiful picture of of the bigness of Jesus, the the majesty of Jesus, the the God who holds the universe inside of his hands and how that that power and that presence with us enables us to live a, a powerful life, a life of risky faith, a life of fearless obedience and passionate leadership. And then the second week we talked about Christ in us, the hope of glory, that, that there's a, a difference between Christ and us and Christ in us, and that we have this hope with Christ in us. We have this hope that cannot be shaken, that cannot be broken, that will not leave us, a hope of a future, but also a hope in the present reality we live in. And then week three, right before we hit pause in this series, we were talking about living in God's grace. The one thing that the church has to offer that that the world can't find, can't get anywhere else. God's undeserved, his, his unearned, his unmerited grace, favor, and love for us. The new you. I started to think this week about one of the most used apps on my phone. It, I literally have it open every day and look at it a few times a day. And it's a, it's a task manager app. It's basically a glorified digital to-do list. And I grew up with this because my mom, I remember even as a little kid, she'd always have pieces of paper with items that she needed to accomplish in that day. And there'd be a check or there'd be a line through it. And she must have put that into me somehow because I get this like weird sense of satisfaction and pleasure when I get to push the little button on my to-do list and go, yeah, that's done, that's done. Like I'll even make a grocery list on it and I'll sometimes be grocery shopping and think, oh yeah, I wanted to get that too. 
I'll write it down just to be able to press the button. It's a disease, I know, but it's something that it, it helps my brain work because sometimes there's so much to get done, listing it helps, and then I get to check it off. And you see, this kind of plays into the, the performance-based culture that we live in, getting things done, because there's a lot to get done in a day. And, and with work, this plays into work, you know, as employees or employers, you know, we, we want to be, you know, high producing, like dedicated, like we're going to get this done because the more I accomplish, if I can move up the bottom line of the company, if I can push things forward, then you know what, I'm going to get rewarded for that. And there's value in that. And companies look at that and go, yeah, you're killing it. You're doing awesome, man. We're going to reward you with, with more because of what you've accomplished in, in your performance. And often that reward is you get more to do. That's just the kind of the way that works. But this performance-based mentality sometimes gets carried into our relationship with God also. We begin to think that we must do for God for him to be pleased with us, that we must do for God for him to accept us, to love us, that God actually demands us to do for him. I mean, think, think of it this way. How would you answer the question if you were asked, what does a Christian look like? What does it look like to be a Christian? And often what we would begin to list off is a, a list of do's, a list of things that a Christian does. Well, they act the right way. They follow the rules. They obey the, the commands in the book. They, they attend church or watch online, as the case may be. You know, they donate money is what they do. They, they attend a small group. They're involved. You know, they serve on a team. They get involved in, in compassion projects. They say all the right things. They don't say the wrong things. Maybe there's even some don'ts that are wrapped up in that. When I grew up, there were a lot of don'ts, you know, things we, that were just not acceptable that you didn't do as a Christ follower, as a Christian. You know, there was, there was no alcohol, there was no movies growing up, there was uh, no secular music growing up. I went to a Christian high school, there was no long hair. Somehow that wasn't godly, to have, you know, as a guy to have long hair or something like that. And there were, there were you know, no dating until 16 Second, that that's probably a good one. So maybe hold on to that one if that's a rule in your family too. But to, to describe a, a Christ follower, to describe a Christian, there'd probably be a lot of do's along with some don'ts that are in there. Now, some of you, maybe even watching, some of you have left the church because of doing expectations that were put on there. You are told by people that you're not doing it right or, or you're doing it all wrong. And it just became so much for you. You're like, you know what, if that's it, then I'm out. Like, I don't want a part of this at all. The, the pressures, the weight you're putting on me. And then there's others of us who are just feeling this tremendous amount of guilt that we're not doing enough for God. And there should be more I should be doing, or I'm just not committed enough. I'm not, you know, following the list. And there's a tremendous sense of guilt over doing. Now, this performance-driven idea of religion, it's not new to us. It's not new to our culture. In fact, Paul, who's writing the letter of Colossians that we're looking at, who's, who's writing this letter to the Christ followers in Colossae, they were facing the same pressures and the same problems, a performance-driven religion. And here's where we're headed in, in the next few minutes. And, and here's what I want you to see as we look at what Paul 
writes to these Christ followers today. We're to live in the reality of what Christ has done, not in the nature of I must do. We're to live in the reality of what Christ has done and not in the nature of what I must do. You see, there's a truth that counters all the the external expectations and pressures that, that others put on us or that we put on ourselves. And there's a truth and a reality that we're to live in. And this is what Paul is going to write to these Christ followers in what we're looking at today. So if you have a Bible, open up. We're in Colossians uh, chapter 2, and we're going to pick up in verse 16. And it says this, Therefore, now hold on, pause right there, because therefore is important. What he's doing is he's connecting something he's just said with what he's about to say. And if you just jumped back a a few verses in chapter 2, what Paul has been saying is, because of the grace Jesus has extended to us through his death and his resurrection, because we are now alive with Christ, because we are now free, he says, from all that would condemn us, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. He says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. You see, Paul is saying to them, and he's saying to us, listen, there's a danger we need to be aware of. And that danger is the pressure to return to old patterns. The pressure to return to old patterns. He says, listen, don't let it, because of all that Christ has done for you, don't let anyone judge you, what you're eating, what you're drinking, how you're practicing a relationship with God. Don't let anyone disqualify you. Meaning what? What does he mean by this? He's saying, don't let anyone put external expectations or guilt on you in your relationship with God, in your journey with God. God, don't let anyone stand in judgment of you. See, the, the, the real Christian word for this would be legalism. And legalism is this idea of I'm acceptable to God based off my actions. I'm doing the right things and I'm living the, you know, because I'm checking off the list, God is going to be okay with me. God is going to accept me. It's, it's the idea you'll see elsewhere of works. I've got to earn God's favor by what I do. My relationship with God is dependent on what I do. And Paul says in verse 20, he says, listen, since you died with Christ, there's the therefore, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You see, these are the the rules of religion. And the Pharisees, this was a group of the super religious at this time, okay? The Pharisees, they were the one who got to define what religion was supposed to look like, how you practiced religion. And it was their duty to make sure everybody was following all the right rules and and doing all the right things. And and they believed the, the way you pleased God was by this meticulous following of every little nook and cranny of the law, of the rules that had been written down. There were 613 of them. Now listen, 
I have trouble remembering 10 things, okay? Let alone 613. But 613 laws, they were followed. There were 365 negative ones. So one for every day. I mean, like how that's super encouraging, right? Like, what's the don't for today? Make sure I don't get that one wrong. But 365 negatives, 248 positives, 613 laws that they equated the spirituality. This is how God is going to be pleased with you, that you are doing these things. And they look down on anyone who isn't doing, anyone who isn't living up to the letter of the law. Now, we see this still today. You know, some of you may be familiar, you may remember the, the church lady from Saturday Night Live. It's reaching back a little bit, but the church lady from Saturday Night Live, Dana Carvey, a comedian, he created this character as a sketch on Saturday Night Live. And, and the church lady hosted this, this talk show, Church Chat. And the church lady would invite different guests onto her show and, you know, you'd start talking to them. But the whole thing became this, this scene where she would begin to belittle them and, and berate them for their, their secular lifestyle and, and for, you know, not living according to the right way. And it would all kind of culminate in this judgmental condemnation on top of them. And they were making fun of the church. Dana Carvey said that he based the character, he came up with the character from women he knew growing up in church who used to track everyone's attendance. They would keep their own attendance sheet. And yet sometimes that's how we feel others are looking at. You know, let's be honest, the church is kind of good at doing that sometimes to people. And sometimes we feel like, man, you're, you're putting all these externals on me and, 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 and the condemnation on me and all these rules on me. And what it can look like today are, are phrases like, well, you know, if you knew more of the Bible, you'd know better. Well, you didn't obey, so, you know, you deserve what you're getting. Or maybe you've heard this, or maybe this has been said to you, you know, that's not what we wear to church. It's our Sunday best that we're putting on. I'd love to see a definition of what Sunday best is, but you know, maybe some of you have said here, or more, maybe it's the church talking you know, more about what they're against than what they're for. There's this, this negative that's always being put out there. And we can even do this to ourselves sometimes, if we're honest. We can put that pressure on ourselves. We can believe, hey, God loves me, but you know what? I'm just not doing enough for him to like me right now. You know, based off what I'm doing or not doing, God probably isn't even pleased with me. And, and we look at others and begin to compare ourselves to others and sort of make them the standard of what we should be doing. And the problem with this is when keeping the rules and the regulations are held as the mark of true spirituality and relationship with God. And Paul you know, Paul has a past of religion. He was one of these super religious guys. He was a Pharisee. In fact, he was so into observing and enforcing the do's and the don'ts that at one point in his life, he was putting Christ's followers away in prison because they weren't following the do's and the don'ts. And then he met Christ and his life was radically changed. And his critique of this outward external judgmental expectation that's put on you as a Christ follower is simply this. 
You're making it more about external appearance than the inward spirit. You're missing the point. And he didn't want the Christians at Colossae to miss the point, and he doesn't want us to miss the point. And here's what he goes on to say. He says in verse 17, he says, listen, all of these things, the practices and the the celebrations and the observances and, and all of this stuff, he says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The the literal translation here is, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the body of Christ. Stop and think about a a shadow for a second. Think about your shadow, or or think if, you know, if if I was walking towards you and the the sun was at my back, what you'd probably see initially is, is my shadow walking towards you. And, you know, based off a shadow, you can't tell, you know, exact things, but you can kind of get an idea of who it is that's approaching you, you know, maybe get an idea of, well, the tall or short or, you know, I don't know, the angle of the sun there, maybe of, you know, my weight a little bit or long hair, short hair, or, you know, there would be certain things you could sort of ascertain about my physicality based off the shadow that's coming towards you. But, but once I'm standing in front of you, you don't need the shadow anymore. I'm standing right here. It's not like you're going to be talking to me going, so Scott, how are you? And I'll be like, um you know, right here. Once I'm there, the shadow disappears because we are now in relationship. We are now in contact. The same is true for Christ. Paul is saying the laws, the rules, the regulations, they gave an outline of Christ. They served as a shadow of who was to come. But once Jesus came, there's no need to focus on the shadow. Because it makes no sense to pay more attention to the shadow than the person whom the shadow represents. The writer of Hebrews, he says basically the same thing. He says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. You see, this this shadow eventually led to a hill. A hill where Jesus was, was nailed to a cross for me. And for you, this shadow led to his death, our redemption, his life, our new beginning, his work, our freedom. You see, and and when when we make a decision to believe, when we make a decision to, to believe in who Christ is and the work he has done for us, we are in Christ Throughout Paul's letter to the the Christ followers at Colossae, throughout this letter, you'll find this phrase, in Christ. And when we choose to believe, we are in Christ. And that relationship is defined by the word done. Done. You see, God loved us before we knew him. He found us before we looked for him. He saved us before we even believed in him. And when we believe our transformation, it's done, it's finished, it's complete. The penalty and the price, our sins have been paid. That separation between God and and humanity, between God and me, when I believe, it's gone, it's wiped out. There's no need to earn his love because he's demonstrated it and he's given it. You see, some of us, we've been focusing on 
or fighting the shadows for far too long. We've been focusing or fighting these shadows for far too long. And it's time to live in the reality of what Christ has done. And, and if what you're doing for God is to, to earn his favor, to earn his acceptance, to earn his love, please know this. He already does. He already loves you and has demonstrated that love for you. Paul goes on, he says, hey, these rules which have to do with the things that are destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. And such regulations, indeed, they have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their, their false humility and their treatment of the body, but they lack value. Now listen, Paul is not saying that the externals aren't important. Paul is not saying that, you know, hey, you don't, once you come to Christ, like, boo, it's, you're free and go do whatever you want. But they're not transformational activities of our lives. The do's are not the transformational activity that changes us. You see, external efforts, they don't transform us internally. But internal transformation affects us externally. You see, it's not our actions that, that transform us on the inside, but that internal transformation that happens in Christ, it affects us externally. Paul says it this way in a letter to the Corinthians. He says, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. You see, the reality, the new reality is what God has done for us and in us. It changes behavior. It, it changes our values. It, it guides our actions towards those who are around us as a reflection of Christ in us because the reality is found in Christ. So, we're therefore, as Paul would say, what does it mean to live in the reality of what Christ has done? What does that mean? Does it mean that we don't have to do anything? Well, Jesus was asked once what the greatest commandment was. Uh, basically, the question was this. Of all the do's that there are to do, what's the greatest do that I better make sure I do? And I can't repeat that because there were too many. But, but basically, you know, what's the, what's the one do of all the do's? that I got to make sure that I'm doing. And here's what Jesus answered. He says, the most important one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You love God with all that you are. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, I love when Jesus is asked for, you know, what's the greatest commandment? He gives two. But he's Jesus, so I'm going to give him a pass on that because that's his prerogative. I'm going to let him do that. But he says the most important do to do, love God, love others. In other words, to love God is to love others. They go together. They go hand in hand. And honestly, that can be a bit challenging at times because we use love to capture so many different ideas, so many different feelings. You know, uh, I love my wife, but I also love soccer. You know, I love Jesus, but I also love mocha almond fudge 
ice cream. And moment of confession, I've had more mocha almond fudge ice cream in the last three months than I've probably had in the last 10 years, okay? Thank you, shelter in place, for that treat right there. But, but love can't mean the same thing. Because if it did, it would make all those things equal. And those things are not all equal. And to love with, with this God-shaped calling that Christ tells us we're to love, it can't mean the same thing as, well, you know, I have an affinity for, or, or I prefer, or, or I'm attracted to, and still capture this command, Jesus says, we're to love with. You see, the, the love Christ is referring to, it's not a feeling, it's not a preference, it's, it's not an attraction. To love is a willful act. It's a choice. It's a decision. It's a love known by the actions that it prompts. It's a love that, that's a conscious decision to be all for another. The word for love here is agapeo. It's, it basically, it's, it's an unconditional, it's, it's a sacrificial, it's a, it's a caring love. It's a deliberate attitude that concerns itself with the well-being of another. It's kind of the, like the purest form of love because it's not me-centered at all. It's not selfish. It's not self-centered. It's Christ-centered. And this is the do within Christ's done. So how do we love like this? If this is the one thing Christ says, man, you're living in the done of my work for you. Here's what I want you to be like within that and to do. How do we do within Christ's done? How do we love like this? Well, a simple way is to simply ask ourselves, what does love require of me? If I'm supposed to love like this, what does love require of me? And again, we admit this is challenging because you know, not everyone is lovable. Let's just be honest out there and don't look at the people sitting next to you wherever you may be because that's a dead giveaway right there, okay? But not, it can be challenging to love and to love with God's love. You see, until we view everyone through the lens of God's created ones, the, the imago Dei, the, the image of God, that we were all created in this, this image of God, and, and to love others is, is to love the image God created them in, to love the one that Christ died for, it's going to be hard to love. And yet this challenge, what does love require of me, helps us to learn to love with God's eyes. What does love require of me when there's conflict? What does love require of me in, in response to the person who's blasted me on social media for whatever? What does love require of me to the person who has, who has wronged me? What does love require of me to the person who's completely other than me? What does love require of me when I'm seeking or extending forgiveness? What does love require of me to, to the coworker who just literally gets on every single created nerve in my body? What does love require of me? What does love require of me in the midst of a pandemic where I just wish people would? What does love require of me in my marriage, in my family, in my community? What does love require of me? You see, when we ask this question, what it begins to do is, is to guide our responses through love rather than allowing our emotions to drive our reactions. 
Love will drive our responses to others rather than emotions driving our reactions. Jesus said it this way in another conversation. He says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What if the description of a Christian, what if, what if you know, you ask someone, hey, what does a Christian look like? What if the answer was overwhelmingly, they love, like they love. Because Jesus said how we love will make us known as a Christ follower. So imagine this with me for just, just a moment. Imagine what could happen, what would happen in our families, in our communities, what would happen if we asked, what does love require of me? And then we embraced that answer and we acted accordingly. What would happen? What would change in your relationships? What would change in your home? What would change in your community? What would change in me and in you? So here's my hope. Here's, here's my encouragement. Here's my prayer for us that we would live in the reality of what Christ has done and not in the nature of I must do. That we would live in the, the transformational, redemptive salvation that Christ has brought to us, the freedom that brings to us, and not in the nature of I must do to earn God's favor, to earn his love. That we would walk in Christ-centered freedom from the expectations of others, and that we would do what love requires of us, to love unconditionally just as God loves us. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful, and I know uh, many who are watching this right now are grateful for that love that you've shown to us, unconditional, unearned love that sent your son to a cross to redeem us, for our forgiveness, for our salvation, for a new life, for a new us. And Lord, we thank you that, that we can live in that done. We can live in that work. We can live in that transformational activity of our lives. And out of that, Lord, we'll grow a life that, that, is, that is full of love for others and, and Lord, serving others and all these things, but, but not as a not as a work to try to earn your favor, not as, a, as some sort of work to try to earn your acceptance or love, but simply be as a response to who you are. And so, Lord, lead us into that place of living in the done and not in the nature of, of I must do these things to earn your love, God, and that we would love as you have loved us, and that whatever the situation, we would ask, what does love require of me, and then act on it, Lord as a representation of you in our world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.